Hello and welcome to Sururbano, a podcast where we talk to leading scholars on Latin American cities about their work, the cities they love, and how to make them better. I'm Isabel Peñaranda Curry, and I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley's City and Regional Planning Department. If you like this episode, click subscribe, leave us a review, and please tell your friends. Welcome everyone to a new episode of Sururbano and one that's a little bit different. So as all you audience members know, this is a podcast about Latin American cities, but honestly right now it seems difficult to talk or think about anything else than the genocide unfolding in Palestine. So I think those of us who think critically about Latin American cities find so many connections between our histories and struggles and the southern colonial project of Israel and its occupation of Palestine, which is particularly true when we think of the role of planning and architecture in cementing the occupation, dispossession, and violence upon Palestinian people, particularly Gazans right now. So this is the focus of today's episode. And to discuss this, it is truly my privilege to introduce our two guests, Dana Ericat and Eyal Wiseman. So... Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak to each other again. It's been quite a while and, <laughs> yeah, really delighted. Absolutely. So I'm just going to provide a brief bio. So Dana is a Palestinian architect and planner with a BA in architecture from UC Berkeley and a master's in city planning from MIT. And the list of positions she's held is as impressive as it is long. So among these, she's worked with UNDP, the World Bank, the Kenyan Institute, and more. And I think for the purposes of this episode, it's relevant to mention that from 2013, she was head of aid management and coordination directorate slash the special advisor to the minister at the Palestinian Ministry of Planning and Administrative Development, during which she led, and hopefully we'll talk about this, the technical committee for the 2014 Gaza Reconstruction Plan. And currently, Dana is the CEO of the data analytic company WISE. So welcome, Dana. Thank you. We're also here with Eyal Wiseman, who is professor of spatial and visual cultures and founding director of the Center for Research Architecture at Goldsmith in the University of London. And he's perhaps most known as, and how I came across his work, as the founder and director of Forensic Architecture which is a multidisciplinary research group based at Goldsmiths that uses architectural techniques and technologies to investigate cases of state violence and violations of human rights around the world. And I understand, Eyal, that forensic architecture has been very active in recent months. Yeah, still. I mean, just pause the work for an hour and a half to speak to you and, and going right back to it after this conversation. Great. Well, thank you so much for doing that. And we're also here with my dear friend, Mekram El-Jamal. Would you like to introduce yourself, Mekram? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for bringing on to co-host this episode. I'm a doctoral student at Columbia in, uh, in urban planning. I work on urban imagination, specifically in LID and the way that they land through planning processes and compete with other urban imaginations. So I'm really glad to be able to talk about planning here, planning in Palestine and what that means for futures. Great. So let's get started, Dana, with just a little bit about yourself and your work as a planner in Palestine. Just briefly, can you give us a little bit of a sense of what that work has been like? Sure. I actually grew up going to Palestine every year, but Prior to 2012, I only lived there for a brief period post the Gulf War for one year, but kept keep returning every summer and every winter holidays to Palestine. And in 2012, when I moved there, my first project was actually with a Palestinian private sector development that were doing a large scale development project in Jericho. It was, you know, residential, commercial and so forth. And as a consultant, I was working with them on doing the assessments for the economic and environmental environment, as well as the water resource aerial mapping. And that's where I began learning about the policies on access to water, even in Palestinian areas that are regulated by Israel, right? So how deep can you, can you actually dig a well? How much water do you have access to? Can you build a road in certain areas or not? And that was more of the work that was directly in terms of like physical design and plans. After that, I became the head of the aid management department and advisor to the minister. And in that role, 
I was coordinating the international aid that came through the governments, government to government aid. So I worked with the international donors, you know, the, the UK, France, the US, Germany, Japan, and all of them in terms of coordinating the funding that comes in in an annual basis and for around a billion dollar portfolio. And in that process, it was quite challenging. Even the donors there, their whole perspective, when they come to Palestine changes because they see the challenges that they face in implementing projects. So I'll give you an example. One of the projects that's related to planning, that was actually a project that was supported by the EU. And it was supporting what we call the local government units. So in Palestine, it's the local government, sort of like the municipalities that actually do the plans and so forth. So the LGUs. And the project was to develop uh, plans for 32 communities, right, of the LGUs. And there are a lot of them are in what's called Area C, which we'll get to in a bit to explain further. And while I was there in 2014, out of the 32 plans that were designed, and after about from 2009 to 2014, so we're talking about five years, with 32 projects been planned for the LGUs, only two got conditional approval from Israel. And seven million seven million euro later, right? So there's this continuous struggle in terms of the funding that comes in and what can actually be on the ground and so forth. And then the, the aggression on Gaza happened in 2014. And that led to, I ended up spending 10 days in, in Gaza at the time, doing the on-the-ground assessments and meeting with various ministry members to get their plans, their needs, and as well as like the World Bank and the UN and so forth. And that led into the development of the reconstruction plan for 2014, which was supported in the Cairo Donors Conference at the time of a pledging of $5.4 billion for, for the reconstruction plan. And Yael, I, I know that you you just mentioned that Forensic Architecture just recently put out a new a new investigation, new project. Could you briefly tell us about forensic architecture, your role within it, and you know maybe briefly what this this recent publication is about? So it's you know it's it, it's very it was very interesting to hear Dana because my involvement with planning in the context of the Israeli colonial occupation was really also through the Palestinian Ministry of Planning, and I was working there for a bit until. I think it was a Norwegian person who goes like, this guy is Israeli. He could go to the archive and get us the maps we don't get from the Israeli government and military. And the weird thing was that the Palestinian Ministry of Planning was actually needed to rely on, you know, a student with an Israeli passport to just go to cadastral office, get aerial images and maps that they were not simply not getting. So then started my kind of fascination and work on cartography and counter-cartography, understanding how important politically our maps and, and, and spatial representation. From, from then I, I went on kind of like producing a map of the occupied territories, the 67 occupied territories, drawing the shape of the settlements and trying to understand how crimes of planners could be committed on the drawing board. Effectively doing kind of forensic architecture avant la effectively looking at architecture as a crime, as a, as, a, as a war crime, as a crime against humanity, because it was aimed to displace people, to tear apart the Palestinian landscape, and effectively as part, especially in Jerusalem, with directly as an attempt at population transfer and displacement. So these ideas were kind of, you know, circulating in my head as, you know, the, the open source revolution kind of began around the 20 teens, no, 2010, 2011, you know, the sort of Tahrir Square and then the series of uprising and repressions that were going on. And all of a sudden we were in a different media environment because people had smartphones and there was social media and, the, you know, the kind of the material got circulated. 
And then forensic architecture kind of changed its mission from looking at crimes committed by architects. A architecture was not the object of, of investigation. It was the method of doing the work. And we realized very fast, very, very early on, not really realized, we fell upon a technique that taught us that when you have a very detailed 3D architectural environment, you can locate the, you know, the thunderstorm, rain of, of images and videos that you have, and you can start seeing relations. That seeing media is not seeing what's in the image, but what's between them. And we build those environments, and it immediately came in a lot of demand. There's a lot of demand for our work. We're working very early on on a drone strike investigation was presented in a general assembly. We were working on cases all over the world. Including Colombia, as we mentioned. Well, Colombia very recently, yeah. So, so then forensic architecture was kind of born out of, you know, kind of like different trajectories coming together, cartography and counter-cartography, and really was born out of activism for free Palestine. No? So, you know, it's like people think that Palestine is this place only where, where weapons and different techniques of colonizations are being kind of experimented with, but there's also techniques of, of resistance and techniques of human rights and techniques of perseverance that are actually developed in Palestine between international Palestinians, sometimes Israeli, Jewish activists. And these have now... Forensic architecture is working really, not only that it's working all over the world, we have offices in Bogota and in Mexico. So there are about a dozen of forensic architecture practices, but the core of it and the beginning of it started at the same starting point that Dana was describing about. The relation between space and violence and occupation and colonization in, in Palestine. So you know, somehow, you know, our trajectories took different routes, but I think we speak in the same idiom, Dana and I, in terms of like space and power. Yeah, so that's a really great transition for our next question, which is basically, I mean, a bit of an impossible task to do in, in a short time, but what inspired this episode is this relationship between planning and the occupation and the legitimation of dispossession and violence. And like, to connect it to Latin America, like this is the foundational story of most Latin America or many Latin American cities, which were founded by the Spanish as a method of colonial control and domination. So Dana, if it's possible, could you sketch out a little bit of the history for people who are not so familiar with Palestine and Palestinian history? What is the history of Palestine-Israel through a planning lens? Like what are some of the key moments and actors? Sure. But before I jumped into that, I just want to mention just on what Yael was talking about in terms of the Ministry of Planning. Actually, one of the things that were discovered after Oslo, the, after the agreements of Oslo, which I'll mention in the time frame, is that the, the maps that the Palestinians were presented with did not match with the maps on which the actual physical allocations were done, right? Because they didn't have access to those maps. And secondly, also with forensic architecture, of how El and I go back is forensic architecture actually did an investigative report on the killing of my cousin that was killed at a checkpoint. So they were able to use experts and so forth. And their work is absolutely critical in terms of shedding truth on various areas of whether it's genocide or human rights violations or oppression and so forth. So I just wanted to, to put that out there. It was one of the most moving investigations, Dana, simply because, you know, we know each other and that has been a personal loss yeah. that we felt very, very, very close to you and to Nora. And seeing the video of Ahmed stepping out of a car with his hands raised clearly up in the air, and being shot at point blank has been devastating. This is devastating, and we're seeing that. And it's it's really related to what we're seeing in Gaza today. Yeah, yeah. it's a policy. Yeah, it's, it's a, take no it's, prisoners. It's, it's an Israeli policy of shoot to kill. So, but we can do a whole other episode about that. I don't want to, you know, I want to get back to Isabel's question. So I tried to summarize the main points you know, specific planning milestones. Mm -hmm. I think when we talk about Israeli colonization or the Zionist project is we, we need to start way back to 
Herzl's, Theodore Herzl's publication of the Jewish state, which is, was published in 1896, where he stated that everything must be systematically settled beforehand. And this resonates and carries through all the plans that we have seen Israel produce and implement on the ground. So the first plan that we know or that we have seen, physical plan, and, and Eil, you can correct me if I missed anything, is 1936, which is the Peel Partition Plan that was done by British mandate, by the British mandate. And it was done to create, identify a land which is 30% of Palestine specifically for the Jewish population. Now, following that in 1947, the UN came up because of the continued migration of uh, European Jews from abroad into Palestine. And, and let me just clarify here, and this is one thing that we've been hearing a lot, and, and we were talking about it before starting to record, is the equivocation of Judaism and Zionism is, is erroneous and false. Jews have always lived in Palestine. There's no question about that. But not all Jews are Palestinian or of Palestinian descent. And uh, the Zionist project, one of the main aim of it was the migration of European Jews and in large part Ashkenazi Jews into Palestine. So that migration started back in the early 1900s and before. And by 1947, you had the population was in Palestine was 33% Jewish and 67 Christian and Muslim Palestinians and Arabs. And that plan that was done by the UN allocated 56% of the land to Israel, which is 33% of the population, and 43% to Palestine, 57 and 43. And 7% as an international zone, which is mainly Jerusalem. But then the Nakba happened in 1948 which was Israel launching nationwide attack on Palestinians and massacring a number of them, displacing another close to 350,000 Palestinians. And by the way, 200,000 Palestinians that started off in Gaza were displaced in 1948. So when we say in Gaza, there's the, popula the refugee population is over 70%. That's where they come from. Yeah, that's really important. To yeah. And and right following the 48, the Sharon plan was was done. And this is was done by Area Sharon, not Ariel Sharon. So it's area with an H. It was really unprecedented because this plan had a countrywide plan to address three main things, which was one, to, to agglomerate and have ready-made housing and places for the migrants, and to also create a buffer zone or a security zone to separate the Palestinian areas. And thirdly, to cater to fast housing for the, the Jewish immigrants. So from it were the European designs, the, what they called the new towns that were pre-planned and you know, deployed, and between 48 and 51, so we're talking about a period of three years, 15 new towns were built across the country, reaching a total of 27 towns by 1965. And these were built on land where Palestinians were displaced and depopulated during 1948. So it was to prevent the return of the refugees also to these lands as well. This also relates to Gaza and the, the settlements surrounding Gaza, but the ones surrounding Gaza because these were also based on this plan. And then the war, the 1967 Six-Day War took place. And following that war, the Alone Plan was created, which proposed that Israel would hand over the Arab-populated areas uh, of Palestinians to Jordan. Then in 1987, and following, again, additional settlement expansions and land expropriation, and it's really important here to mention that laws were actually put in place by Israel to legalize the land confiscation. So there were more, more, two main laws that were put in place. One, which is the absentee, they were enacted, uh, the absentee property law and the land acquisition law. So after we had an uprising, 1993, the Israeli and Palestinians signed a peace agreement, sort of quote-unquote peace agreement. And under the Oslo Accords, Palestinian areas were divided. The West Bank, which is based on the, the 1947 plan, 
was divided, sorry, 1967 plan was divided into three areas, A, B, and C. A being under Palestinian air control, B being economically and socially under Palestinian control, but under Israeli security, and C being under complete Israeli control for an interim period of five years. That was the plan. Area C constituted 60% of, of the, the, the division of, of land. And until today, Area C has been under Israeli control and being further confiscated. So when we look at Palestine today, we're looking at 18 to 22% of the original historic of Palestine. So this, I would say these are the main significant points of planning and where we've come to today. Sorry, I took too long. You can edit it out. Actually, it was great. <laughs> I, I really, <laughs> Dan, I really enjoyed hearing, hearing that history again. You gave, you gave a great segue in mentioning the new towns and development towns into the, the kind of pivot we wanted to make towards focusing a little bit more on, on Gaza. And so, Ian, and could you give us a little bit of a clear image of, well, what does the development of the settlements along the Gaza border look like and how, how those, those started to arise in the, the timeline for, for those settlements? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, I mean, it's very much uh, in line with what Dana was saying. The Israeli planning was always a militarized practice. Settlements are always there as both as, you know, agricultural communities, but as border posts and as a claim over land. And in particular, the land around the Gaza, what, what has become this sort of geographical reality is called the Gaza Strip, which is not a historical reality. It's the kind of <clears throat> effectively the concentration of refugees from across Palestine, mainly from the south, some from Jaffa, into this coastal strip was has needed to become a geographical entity by enclosing it. One, I creating a string of settlements around it. So immediately, actually, as the, as the ethnic cleansing, the process of ethnic cleansing that is called the 48 War is unfolding, during it, quasi-militarized communities are actually being set along the border in order to stabilize that line. So, you know, try to imagine yourself into the kind of the mindset of Israeli planners, who are very often also military officers, who are sitting with maps, and sometimes they are directing the movement of infantry and armor, and at other times they are actually fortifying with communities, with settlements. They are militarizing civilian settlements. Another very important reason for the rush to establish that string of settlements around this newly created entity of the Gaza Strip is that it wasn't yet settled that UN Resolution 192 calling for the right of return would not be respected. Ben-Gurion and Israeli leadership were thought that they would be forced to allow the people expelled from Palestine to go back to their homes. So they wanted to create facts on the ground that would make that return impossible. So it was precisely on lands that were evicted, on the ruins of Palestinian villages that they established the Israeli communities. Okay, so it's a land claim and it's a it's a, it's an act of fortification. And now, you know, anyone that has is, is living in this land, everybody that is familiar with Palestine, know that that region is actually a rather fertile region, especially the north. Yeah, you had the, the conversation around the soil brings up this, this notion of the frontier that we constantly think about vis-a-vis -vis settler colonialism. And when you're talking about the soil, there is a very fluid sense of border and the intentional fluidity and impermanence of a border. And you bring this up a little bit in your article, Exchange Rate. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about the significance of constructing this space as a, a permanent frontier. And do we need to understand this as an intentional permanent frontier? What are the stakes of the way that planning has 
made these settlements and this this borderline across around the Gaza Strip a as a permanent frontier. Is that a fruitful language to understand this space? No, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the word frontier, sfar in Hebrew, is quoted everywhere on, on planning documents. It's a design of the frontier that is the task of Israeli planner post-1948, as Dana very clearly mentioned, what is relatively kind of opportunistic, a kind of opportunity-based, you know, you buy land. This is what I'm talking about before 4048. You buy land, you settle it at night, overnight, you build a tower and stockade. It's becoming a kind of a design on a tabula rasa of destroyed Palestine. Palestine has been erased. The people have been displaced. The state, through the absentee law, is the custodian of that land, and they can just start making plans on a blank piece of paper, effectively. They can draw what they want. They can run the roads where they want. They can put the settlements where they want, etc. And they want to move their population from the center to the frontier. And they have a value of this sort of warrior settler. And that is really the kind of the ethos of Zionism at this point. They have military units that are the kind of the core, the pioneers, Nachal, is the pioneering fighting youth. These are units in the, in the Israeli army that are actually building cores of settlements. And when it matures, it kind of goes through a process of civilian, civilianization, so to speak. But we don't need, when we speak about agrarian settlements, and this is here the difference between those settlements in 48 occupied Palestine from 67 occupied Palestine. These are agrarian settlements. The settlement extends all the way to, to the agricultural areas that it actually, the, the, the ecological footprint of this. And that means that we need to think slightly differently. We need to think about colonialism as environmental transformation. And in fact, as one of the drivers of climate change in this particular area, because the erasure of Palestine, the Nakba, is not only the displacement of the people, the destroying of the villages and towns, this creation of Tabula Rasa. It's a transformation of the environment to an environment that is more familiar to the European agrarian imagination than the that of the Western Africa, uh, sorry, Western Asia region where Palestine is. So effectively, there is a massive undertaking of, 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 of landscape transformation, changing the species of plants, changing the species of wheat that is cultivated by Palestinian farmers to the one that of higher yield that is part of the green revolution. Transformation of the soil, the transformation of the soil changes everything in the movement of Animals of you know flora and fauna is being completely transformed in this in this in this area. I do think it's a useful point to try to contrast like what is unique about the process of like settler colonialism in the Gaza envelope versus around the West Bank that you were mentioning, Dan. And since you have experience in both, I was wondering if you could like draw some some comparisons. I mean, one of the most obvious comparisons is that the settlements in the West Bank did not begin until 67 and after. Physically, I think there's a huge difference between the settlements in the West Bank and those in Gaza. The settlements around the West Bank are, I would, I would say, in, they're very prominent and in your face, right? They're massive fortresses. Physically, you see them. They're situated on hilltops. They're huge developments that are done very fast very quickly. So they're modular, they're homogenous, they look the same all around. And you see them from any place that you are. While the ones in Gaza, they're like Eyal said, they're more of agricultural zones. They're more hidden, so to speak, right? So you don't actually, you don't see them physically. You don't look outside your window and see the settlement next door. And I think that's a very, very significant difference between the two. And the settlements in the West Bank tend to be for two reasons. People move to them for two reasons. One, religious values, right? So this deep-rooted belief, especially in the settlements in Hebron, where the conditions of the settlers themselves 
a lot of times are not that great. They're actually in pretty bad conditions, but they could choose to live there because of their religious uh, beliefs. And the second reason is you get the economic economic opportunities by living in a settlement, right? You get free housing, you get subsidies, you're paid to move and, and go live in a settlement. And, and I think this this is a, a clear distinction between what Eyal was talking about of them being, you know, militarized and Gaza and the people being militarized versus the ones the ones that are in the West Bank. I wanna just before we move on to like discussing within Gaza itself. Uh, I did want to touch upon a point that we mentioned earlier and that you say really eloquently, Eyal, in your exchange rate article. You write, Israel has spent decades blurring the line between civilian and military functions of the settlements, but now the line has been blurred in ways never intended by the Israeli government. The civilian inhabitants co-opted into being part of the living wall of the Gaza envelope got the worst of both worlds. They couldn't defend themselves like soldiers and they weren't protected like civilians. And so I think that both points to like the similarities in that settlements in both cases blur the lines between what is a military like territorial occupation project, but also draws the attention to like the unique frontierness of the Gaza envelope, which I find quite striking and also like has so many parallels, even with American history, the frontiers, other colonialism here. But I, because we're, Short on time, I want to I wanna really get into Gaza now. Dana, you were involved in planning within Gaza, as you told us. Can you, just for someone who has can't even imagine this universe, like what, what did you do there and how would you describe that experience when you went? Okay, well, um, like I mentioned, I went there as the for the tech as the lead of the technical committee to be able to see how things were on the ground to also collect data and reports from the various ministries and NGOs and so forth to compile them together into one document for basically the assessment for reconstruction so one of the things that that are often been said and a lot is that um, Israel disengaged from Gaza in 2005 and Nothing is further from that truth in terms of how it actually works. So to give you a little bit of a background, in 19, right after the Oslo Agreement, right, which was the peace agreement, Gaza was part of Area A, which was to be handed to the PA. And yet at the same exact time is when Israel started building a fence with the buffer zone around Gaza. It was a light fence. It wasn't like a wall that didn't come until later. And I remember back then I went to Gaza in 2001 and the way in order to leave, to leave Gaza, there was no Eris, the border, the main uh, crossing from between Palestine and the Israeli side. When I went back in 2014, Eris was fully constructed. Uh, what we call the Eris crossing, which is again between Palestinian Pal- Gaza and the Israeli side to go into Palestine. And the wall was completely built around Gaza. So Gaza is literally an open air ghetto, walled ghetto. It's a beautiful place inside. There's quite a bit of development, you know, contrary to what you've been hearing, what we've been hearing a lot in the news is that Hamas has not developed Gaza. Hamas spent all their money on the tunnels. Yes, Hamas did spend a lot of money on the tunnels, but Gaza was, when I went, was extremely well developed in terms of roads, in terms of infrastructure. Now, 2014 was the biggest aggression after the one that is happening now, right? So you had, but the it was still, it was, it was in particular areas and huge towers were bombed, huge, you know, which was a whole neighborhood was bombed to the ground. But a lot of the places stayed intact, especially on the waterfront, which you don't see this time around at all. Can you talk a little bit about what planning even looks like in such an exceptional space that is, I mean, of course, 2014 was the worst period and now is like even worse, but... Like, how does planning even unfold in a place that is so constantly under threat? It's it's not, they don't plan for the destruction. For example, there are no, what do you call them, bunkers in Gaza, right? And this is a really important question. It's like, why aren't Palestinians, or even in the West Bank, building underground underground bunkers? Because that thought is is not is not in their in their processes that, you know, not they're not living 
thinking that they are at war, they're living under occupation, which is very different, right? So it's, it's a, there's a big difference between being at war and being under occupation. Planning happens at the local level. So the minute there's, you know, the, the, the roads that are planned, but it's all very confined. So you don't plan outside of your confined zone. So your planning is very, it's all local and municipal, right? You plan on where you're going to build a road and where you're going to build a school, where you're going to build a waterfront, but you don't plan for your economic zones, all right? The, the, the one airport that was in Gaza got bombed in the 2000s, so it's, it's completely shut down. So imagine you're basically doing a plan in a walled city, and that's where your full planning is confined. Now, in terms of the, the reconstruction, to give you an idea of what planning for reconstruction looks like, the reconstruction plan, the estimates that were done, stipulated that needed a 4.5, I said 5.4 earlier, it's actually $4.5 billion for reconstruction. That required a lot of cement to come in, a lot of material, right? It was also, it was for agriculture, for health, for water, all sectors. So what had to be done was because Israel controls the, the crossings and what material can be in, and they have what they call a dual use list. They created the GRM, which is the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism, which was a tri-party agreement between the UN, Israel, and the PA of what is going to be allowed to come in. That fell apart completely, right? That, I mean, we would get the reports of the kind of material that was being allowed in, the quantity that was being allowed in, and it wasn't a fraction of what was required to rebuild. And so, yes, Hamas did resort to the tunnels. So the tunnels are an economic, a huge economic tool right, for Hamas. And that's where they were able to get a lot of the material that they need. They were able to get a lot of the people would go in the tunnels. I have a friend who went to the tunnels and took photos one time. She's, you know, she's from the West Bank and it's published. She took a picture of a bride crossing in the tunnel to go get married. Oh, she took, I know right. the picture, yeah. Yeah, Tanya Habjuka took that photo. And so the tunnels are not just for military, for, you know, as they say, for military use or to bring. No, it, it is the, it was the economic um, connection point for, for Palestinians who, who are living in Gaza. I want to say another thing about tunnels, because I think tunnels is in as much as there is a meaningful architecture of resistance, it is the tunnels. The tunnels is not just a feature of Palestinian resilience. And in fact, their ability after what it is between 70 and 80 days since, since the invasion began, the, the fact that, that Hamas is still you know, in control and has not been defeated. The tunnels are effectively their kind of architecture of resistance here. And it's interesting that when Israel is... is working on soil in a transformation of the soil, Palestinian resist, resistance retreat into the subsoil. And that has been a technique of anti-colonial struggle from the Mapuche in, in, you know, in Argentina, today Argentina and Chile, Mapuche tunnels, and Vietnam in many other places where indigenous people, when colonized, retreated in the only direction they could flee and that is, you know, into the subsoil. And the subsoil is, is another kind of frontier. The subsoil is something that Israel is spending enormous amount of energy in trying to map, in trying to understand where the tunnels are. I think they imagine something much more extensive than what there is. I mean, we've all seen their fantasy animation under Shifa. It was actually, it was actually the, they had built the underground infrastructure before. So it wasn't even under Shifa. So it wasn't even a tunnel. Yeah. I mean, they've built, they've built part of the, of the underground infrastructure, but you know, be that as it may, there are tunnels and they are, they are effectively for Israel. The subsoil is, under Gaza is this is a single for them it's not true but for them it's a single legitimate military target meaning they don't know where the tunnels are and they're bombing they're putting 
30,000 tons of bombs into the subsoil, creating earthquake, another kind of environmental, not a metaphor, an environmental reality that is, that is afflicted on the people of Gaza, creating earthquakes that destabilize foundations of building throughout, not only the building that is being bombed, they're throwing depth bombs that, that explode sometimes 30 meters under the surface, bury entire family in the ground, entire families in the ground. You know, the subsoil of Gaza is now also a huge mass grave with estimates of about 10,000 people buried physically, not buried spiritually, religiously. They've not been interned. They've just been covered by earth and, and rubble of buildings. And, but still a space from which resistance is being offered. And, you know, if you think about the subsoil, it is, it's more in tunnels. It's more like a system than it is an object. It's a system of connection. It is more like roots or the internet that connects point on the surface than a kind of a thing that you, that you think about. I wonder, sorry, I, I wonder if we can use the tunnels as a kind of transition into our last question, because it is this kind of like mixed message of, hope and resistance, but also a response to just like unbelievably oppressive conditions. So, and yeah, I just have so many thoughts because I think like this tunnel network also really exemplifies like what an act of resistance, like urbanization in Gaza is. Like every single building is the product of these networks and of these cements that were like brought in thanks to like the labor of so many people through these subterranean systems. And so the destruction and herbicide of cities is that much more powerful and that much more violent. And I've also, based on what you were saying before, was also thinking of Iris Young's like idea of the city as a normative ideal and of social differentiation without exclusion being one of the like ideals of a city. And it gives me, for me as a planner or someone studying planning, like that is something that I hold on to and in thinking of decolonizing architecture like that's the kind of imaginary that I aspire to, a place where there can be difference, but not exclusion and definitely not annihilation. And that seems also to be something that's targeted when with the herbicide of Gaza City and uh, the built environment. So all that as a, as a prelude to ask, in which it's so hard to think about Gaza's future, but there's such a necessity to, I don't know, push back against the discourse that this is a moment of complete erasure. What do you think of, like, what is thinkable about Gaza's future and even of planning for Gaza's future? So I think that, you know, the future of Palestine with return is one in which we need to reimagine land allocation, how we live together in cities. Uh, what's the relation between the landscape, the envi open environment and the built one? I feel that, you know, the, as, as I said, the Nakba has not only been the kind of the displacement of people, it's been a transformation of the landscape, the built environment, and the relation between the built and, and the, and the uh, non-built, the agricultural or, you know, open landscape environment. Um, the, the, the Nakba is environmental transformation, Nakba is environmental violence, Nakba is climate change. It's that kind of level of transformation and return is something that allows us to to actually decolonize our imagination and, and and find different ways of living, and may I say also living together, that were born on in this land, people that grew up there living together equally in in a, in a, in, a, in a state that is in which you know citizenship is 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 equal, and in which we. You know, we just basically, it's a demand. It's a very, it's such a modest demand for a democratic society uh, in which everybody has the vote and the rights to, to migrate and move and uh, when, when the right of return has been fulfilled. And I think that this is, this is really where the future is for me now. Of course, there is all these, there's all these fantasies now of resettling Gaza. And strangely, what you see on the ground is that the, the, the armored maneuver, the arrows, you know, those arrows that we see on the map of where the occupation forces enter from the north, they enter from the center, they enter in the south, 
they enter exactly where the settlements were. And this shows you that the military maneuver and the settler colonial maneuver are very close together. And because they enter on the same pathway, because armored soldiers entering into the Gush Katif area or the Nevet Kalim area or the Dugite, you know, the areas where other settlements were in the north, that they all of a sudden realize, hey, we are now in land that we used to be in, and then they hang the signs, you know, we are going to resettle that part. Of course, they want to, you know, the kind of the genocidal fantasy of that war is also that you can demolish the entire, the entire, all the cities and refugee camps and, and create another tabula rasa of 1948. I don't believe this is possible. I don't believe they, the, the government really feel that it's possible to do that. But it's definitely an animating fantasy that is at the root of the violence that they're exercising. My take on the Palestinian future is very much in line with Eyal's, where you need to have a one democratic state. We have seen this, and, and a lot, you know, some people may say this is a wishful thinking, right? But I, I definitely believe it is not an overnight process. Right. You, you look at it, look at Palestinians in 1948, right? So the Palestinians that stayed, like Mekram is from Lid. Till the today, they're still facing discrimination. They're still facing, quote-unquote, legalized discrimination, even under Israeli law. Like That's the thing about Israeli, the Israeli government, is they legalize their genocide, they legalize their discrimination, they legalize, legalize their ethnic cleansing. But Imagining what that actually looks like and the process of where that can lead to eventually, because I don't see any other possibility if we are to imagine a future. And leading with that mindset would really allow us to look at it from the planning perspective and actually plan for a future rather than plan under soil or within, within the walls, right? I'm not going to talk about what I think will happen post this war because I don't want to have that bleak picture. But yeah, the only way forward I see it is to have a a, a state with equal rights and, and citizenship and, and, and plan in that direction and knowing that it will be a struggle, right? It will be a continuous. We've seen it. We've seen it in the US. We've seen it in Latin America. We've seen it across the world. Decolonizing does not mean you're going to have it to do it. And, you know, South Africa, that's the biggest example, but it's a process. Right? It's a process of continuous resistance, a process of continuous fight for justice and equality and so forth. I'm, I'm really sad we didn't get into the like municipal zoning and architectural practices and just the details that make planning so rich and that combination of the technical and the political. But can I can I just mention I wanted to comment on something Eyal said in regards to the, the settlements that were taken disengaged from Gaza. There's a very distinct and I think very important difference between the way the Israeli settlers approach taking over of land versus Palestinians claiming back their land is one thing that we've seen in the Nakba, especially in 48, is the Israeli settlers actually took over Palestinian houses as they are. They still stand there physically as they are, their furniture, their stones, and they had no problem with that. They occupied the homes as they are. After the disengagement from Gaza, a lot of the destruction of the settlements that were there was were done by the Palestinians themselves because it was a, a reminder of the occupation and of the Israeli settlers and they couldn't you know they were they were not interested nor able to come to terms with the remin- the remaining of what was once occupying them and I think this is a very clear distinction between an occupier and a settler and somebody who is being decolonized, even on a small scale. I think what, what that comment really drives home and circling back to this discussion of imagination and the, what I appreciate about your conversation around imagination is your, the attention to the minutia. And this is coming out in the way Dana is talking about the difference between occupation and, and settler colonialism of there's the minutia of taking apart spaces of that are a reminder of what once was versus just being in place or taking them over. And as we think towards, there's a, an, a necessity for me of keeping in mind 
the, the importance of looking to the future of the imaginations, despite the destruction and death, we need to pay attention to this imagination of future, but not one, like Ia said, that is this grand sensationalist future, but what are the imaginations in the minutia? What are the details of it that enable it to move forward rather than becoming this kind of paralysis? And I think what both of you are, are speaking to is the way that imaginations can, can keep us grounded in some ways in, in working towards these, the Palestinian future in a, a space of kind of persistent existence that I think is, is incredibly empowering and needed to hold on to at, at this current moment. I think that's a perfect place to end. Unless, Ayal, you want to add anything? No, just appreciation and thank you both. I think, you know, all of, all of you for, for inviting me for this and, and for these last words. And I think that, you know, as architects, we, you know, we tend to, our imagination is somehow kind of like tends to be negotiated with reality, with understanding it, with the texture of place, of territory, of environment. It's the, and I think in Palestine, there's so much that has been imposed on this land through the process of settler colonialism. There's, there's been so much, you know, abstraction, abstract imagination has been imposed, drawn on the kind of turning it into Bularaza and piles and piles of, of fantasies of others, of people that were not actually grew up or born in that place and imposed their will on it. And I think that thinking about the future is really being tuned to to the land, to the soil, to the environment. And starting from there, I know it might sound a bit kind of, you know, naive or but but I think that the 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 landscape and its fragility is really the place to start in imagining a future and working with care, care for the people and care for the environment as you slowly start to heal that place from the piles of destruction and imposition that have been put on it. And, and I think that, you know, us and architects, you know, have sometimes, or we should have, that kind of, you know, starting point from, from, from looking at site and responding to it. Dana, any parting thoughts? No, oh, thank you both so much. It was really wonderful. And Eyal, thank you for coming on board. Sururbano is a product of the Latin American Cities Working Group, based in UC Berkeley. To find out more about us, check out the show notes, where we also link the articles we discuss. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you want to be a co-host, you can reach us at latam underscore cities on Twitter, or write to me on Instagram or Twitter at ipenarandac. This season was made possible by UC Berkeley's Global Metropolitan Studies and the Center of Latin American Studies. Our original music is made by a planner, Jaime Alejandro Angarita, and our original art is made by the talented Rachel Myers. Check out our show notes to get the link to her Instagram. Finally, our production was done by Francesca Frenzy, without whom this truly would not have been possible. Thanks, everyone.